following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. These were bizarre stranglings. Five women were strangled in Boston in the summer of 1962. The women were all older, between 55 and 75. They were left in obscene positions with the flowing bows and knots. Then in December 1962, two more victims were found, both strangled in their own homes with pieces of their own clothing as before. But this time, the women were much younger. Sophie Clark and Patricia Bissett were both in their 20s. It's very, very unusual for a sexual murder of elderly women to change targets to a much younger victim. I've not seen it with any of the serial offenders that I'm familiar with. The first five women had been sexually abused with objects. In the murders of Clark and Bissett, there was no evidence of such abuse. The difference suggested a copycat strangler, or stranglers. Last episode, we met Adele Roof, the previous tenant of Bissett's apartment. Adele told us that just months before the murder, a strange man had been lingering around her door. At first, I wasn't nervous, but then I looked down and he was uh, performing a sexual act on himself there at the door. Adele saw him several times. She even tailed him once into a dangerous neighborhood and reported the address to the police. But with all the thousands of tips in the Strangler investigation, it seems police lost track of Adele's lead. The man was never pursued. Fifty years later, we can understand the overwhelming job faced by police. Even promising leads like Adele's weren't really proof of anything. Investigators were grasping for hard evidence. That's why today's story fascinates me, because it has witnesses and clues and a confession. It's the story of a strangling just a few months after Sophie Clark and Patricia Bissett were murdered. The only catch? This strangling didn't happen in Boston. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Articles of silk or satin. killer was hiding inside the apartment. It's the unknown that we fear. Episode 5, Gotham Strangler. History should be recorded accurately. What's true is what's true. In this episode, we're spending time with a retired Florida public prosecutor named Brian Kavanaugh. He spent the majority of his 38-year career in the Homicide Trial Unit, 10 years as chief of that unit. He tried over 100 murder cases and settled many more. He was somewhat of a legend in the courtroom. He had a flamboyant style, and his closing arguments were famous for their mix of conversational tone and moral outrage. And if we perpetuate a falsehood, we are just as guilty as those who created it. 
If you look up the Boston Strangler on Wikipedia, you'll see the picture of one man, Albert DeSalvo, who confessed to 13 murders. Brian is obsessed with a suspect and a particular strangling that most people have forgotten about. The victim's name doesn't appear on the list of women killed by the Boston Strangler, and her murderer's name doesn't come up when I talk with police and journalists who are well-versed in the history of this investigation. But Brian's theory is worth some attention. It starts with a murder in 1963 in New York City. A well-to-do 62-year-old woman from California checked into the Hotel Woodstock on 43rd Street near Times Square. She was petite, dark-haired. She wore a scarf around her neck to hide scars from an operation. Mrs. Zenovia Clegg checked into room 1140 after arriving from San Francisco 10 days ago. This is from the New York Daily News a few days later. Her arrival marked the end of a round-the-world trip she apparently embarked on after divorcing Nayland T. Clegg, an accountant for a California hotel chain in Santa Barbara. During the time she was a guest at the hotel, she made an impression as a lonely woman who was not in the best of health. Zenovia was dying of cancer. She was in New York to have as much fun as she could in her final days. Zenovia told a woman she met that week she was on a mission to get drunk and meet men. I was up around 45th and I believe 6th Avenue and I was starting to glance into a store window and this woman approached me and she asked me if I'd do her a favor. This is a reenactment of a first-hand account from the young man Zenovia met that evening, Wednesday. May 29th. Well, I don't know how to get to my hotel. She said, will you help me? I'll take care of you and I'll give you some money. I said, well, yes, I can have something to drink then. So we started off. First, she wanted to stop into a delicatessen and in the process of walking there, she decided she wanted a drink. And that's when we stopped into this Jewish restaurant. They went to one bar. We drank wine. Then another. A good drink of good whiskey, scotch, a couple of beers, vodka straight, daiquiris. They picked up a six-pack from a deli, along with some pears. I think it was pears. And then we went from there to the hotel. She said, let's have another drink. They stopped in the bar for a couple more. Then made their way up to her room. We went in, and she had to go to the bathroom. She said, here's the liquor, help yourself while I'm getting cleaned up a little bit. The next morning, the chambermaids presumed Zenovia was asleep. She was lying with her legs crossed and her eyes closed. They quietly withdrew. The morning after that, they did the same. On the third day, her death was discovered. The nude body of the five-foot-one woman, who weighed little more than 100 pounds, was found in her bed at 11.40 a.m. Sunday by a hotel maid, Hazel Simpson. She had been beaten and strangled, her own scarf knotted tightly down around her neck, and then put in the form of a, of a bow. So she had been brutalized. The lead detective on the scene that morning was Tom Cavanaugh, Brian's father. C-A-V-A-N-A-G-H, no U, 
The U is an English contrivance, and it's with a C, not a K. Your middle name is Thomas. My middle name is Thomas. Like your father's first name. Yes, it is. Detective Tom Cavanaugh wasn't just an excellent investigator. He was flashy, with a big personality and a bigger reputation. Eventually, Tom Cavanaugh would become the basis for a very popular television detective. My name is Theo Kojak. It's interesting how matter-of-fact death can become. I can remember the first day I was on the floor. Detective Theo Kojak, on his show, regularly confronted scenes of terrible and mystifying violence. Now there are two girls, 20 and 22, mutilated beyond anything I'd ever seen. He was only like my dad in certain respects. Number one, the fact that he commanded respect. Number two, the way he was attired. My dad always was impeccably attired. But my dad didn't suck lollipops. My dad was a chain smoker. In real life, Tom Cavanaugh's beat included Times Square, long before it was cleaned up for the tourist trade. But the murder of Zenobia Clegg stood out. The scarf knotted in a bow caught Detective Kavanaugh's eye, as did the posing of Zenobia's body, legs crossed, with a pair that seemed to have been placed next to her on the bed. These aspects of the crime scene were shocking, but they resembled details in a series of murders Detective Kavanaugh had been hearing about. There was a lot of knowledge in police circles about what was going on in Boston or had gone in Boston the year before. The M.O. of the Strangler was widely known. And my dad was a, was ahead of his time in terms of profiling and, and piecing together different parts of a jigsaw puzzle. And he knew that these features were similar to what had been going on in Boston. And he knew that person had not been apprehended. This was in Detective Kavanaugh's mind as he and his men canvassed for witnesses in and around the hotel. They found the clerk at the deli who remembered selling the beer in the pears and the bartender at the Hotel Woodstock who recalled seeing a very odd-looking couple. Bartender said he was about six foot five. She was about five foot tall, maybe a little over five feet. She was much older than him. And they were drinking together, and she was trying to be lovey-dovey with him at the bar. She was drinking Rob Roy's. He was drinking vodka and daiquiris, may have had a beer. The police made a composite drawing of the suspect and fanned out to bars in the area. They were looking for a tall man with a thin mustache, a widow's peak, and arched eyebrows. On June 5th, around 11.30 p.m. in a Greenwich Village bar, Detectives spotted their man and took him into custody. Upon arrival at the station house, the man was told to empty his pockets. So what was in his pockets? A money order. One of the deceased money orders, Zenobia Clegg's money orders, American Express Traveler's check. And in the other pocket was her cigarette case with her that was engraved. He also had a driver's license with the name John C. Farrell. The license was stolen. His real name was Charles Edward Terry. He was a drifter from Maine. Detective Tom Cavanaugh was the first to interrogate Charles Terry. He got him alone with the other detectives listening by the door. And he said, listen, Charlie, we have two witnesses who can positively identify you. 
Brian's dad was so good at coaxing confessions from suspects that he earned a nickname, the Velvet Whip. Did you see that Filipino bartender? Remember him? He served you a daiquiri. He served her a Rob Roy, remember? Brian's heard this story so many times that he acts out all the parts. And remember that bellhop who took you and her up to the room? Remember? You and I know what you did in that room. You go into the electric chair, Charlie, because not only do we have the eyewitness identification, but we have her property in your pocket. He said, okay, I'll tell you. He said, I killed her. Charles Terry told Kavanaugh they'd kept drinking, and he was too drunk to perform. Then she made fun of me and taunted me. What are you, a boy, little boy? Can't get it up? Do you, do you like men? Don't like women? I, 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 I lost control. I took my forearm on her, and she started to scream, and I jumped her. When Brian reached this part of the story, he pressed his arm into his own throat, like his dad would do whenever he told the story. He choked her with the scarf? No. He choked her with his hands, and then he tied the scarf? No, first with his forearm, pressed it into her to stop her from screaming. Right. What else did you do, Charlie? <laughs> I took a scarf, and I... It down. After he cinched it down, Charles Terry took the time to tie the scarf in a bow. There was another detail Detective Kavanaugh was after. Whoa, 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 hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. You did something else, Charlie, you and I know you did. My dad said it was very careful not to suggest what the answer was, because this is something only the killer would know. Yeah, he said, okay, yeah. I took that bottle that she made her drink with. And I shoved it in her for good measure. The Boston police had spent almost a year looking for the strangler. They had no solid suspects. But Brian Kavanaugh says in that moment, his dad felt sure he'd caught the Boston Strangler in New York. Coming up after the break, Detective Tom Cavanaugh searches for proof to back up his instinct about Charles Terry. Knocking on doors, going to businesses, and witnesses there at these, at these establishments identified Terry. They recognized, recognized his picture. Yes, he was here. And now, back to Stranglers. Charles Terry had confessed to strangling Zenovia Clegg in a Times Square hotel room. And everything about the murder, Zenovia's age, the knotted scarf, the sexual abuse with a bottle, the pair posed next to the body, all of these things echoed aspects of the Boston Stranglings. 
Detective Tom Cavanaugh asked Terry a simple question. My dad took a long breath and said, Charlie, have you ever been to Boston? No, no, never, never. Like that. So really quickly denied it. Quickly in a very guilty conscience sort of way. He was only going to give up at that point what he knew the police had him on. Then, in the middle of the interrogation, the phone rang. My dad said he got a call from someone in the district attorney's office, the DA's office. And they said, listen, can you hold off your questioning? Do we get a stenographer down? We've been having legal difficulties with some confessions. We want to get a stenographer down there to make sure this is admissible in court. And we're going to send an ADA down, assistant district attorney down. According to Brian, his father had no choice. He stopped the interview, got a cup of coffee, and waited for the assistant DA to take over. Statement of Charles Edward Terry made to Gerald E. Fogarty, assistant district attorney, 3.30 These are the stenographer's notes from the assistant DA's interrogation. Uh, where do you live, Mr. Terry? 72 Bank Street. When you say you went for a short stroll... As I said, that evening later on, somewhere between 8 and 9, I took a stroll uptown, and I was up around 45th and I believe 6th Avenue, and I was starting to glance into a store window, and this woman approached me and she asked... The assistant DA took down a full account of Terry's day, from where he went for breakfast to the hours following the murder of Zenobia Clegg. After stealing a bottle of whiskey from the hotel room, Terry finished it on the steps of an opera house, then wandered into a late-night diner where he told a man that he was celebrating. Must have been 5.30 in the morning, and I stopped in there and had a couple of cups of coffee. I was talking to a guy in there, telling him I was sort of celebrating my birthday a little bit late. He was pretty plastic. I've read the transcript. The assistant DA asked about every aspect of the murder of Zenobia Clegg. What did you do when you left? I walked down the stairs. But not once did he ask anything about the stranglings in Boston. Detective Kavanaugh and his team were prevented from thoroughly interviewing Charles Terry. But nobody could keep them from making a phone call. They called Boston. We have, we, we have a strangler here, very similar to yours. You might want to send somebody down. Boston agreed this was worth a look. Lieutenant John Donovan, the head of the homicide squad, came in person. Boston cops, I, I strangler here as man they want. A six foot five, confessed strangler of a 62-year-old divorcee here exactly matches the Boston strangler in seven critical points, including a peculiarly perverted form of safety. This is how the Daily News portrayed Donovan's visit to New York. The caption is very interesting. Donovan explained that there are certain technical aspects that make the Clegg murder very interesting. And Terry, quote, a suspect in at least four of the Boston cases, unquote. With two of his homicide detectives, Donovan conferred in a district attorney's office and then went to Manhattan City Prison to question Terry, but the prisoner refused to talk to him. Charles Terry had clammed up. He simply refused to talk to the Boston detectives. Lieutenant John Donovan headed home empty-handed. Lodi News Sentinel, June 8, 1963. New York murder not linked to phantom. Chief Boston homicide detective John Donovan said Friday 
At this point, I haven't any evidence to connect him with any of the crimes in Boston. He did not personally question the six foot five. Just Terry like that, the Boston police were in and out of New York, and Terry was dismissed as a suspect in the serial killings. But Tom Cavanaugh was a bulldog. He wasn't about to let this go. So he sent two of his NYPD detectives up to Boston just to see if they could place Terry in the city. First, they found that Terry's grandmother lived in Boston. But Kavanaugh's detectives found something even more damning. They tracked Terry to two places in Boston. He apparently had come down on weekends from Maine in June of 1962, stayed in the Bostonian Hotel, and later in August stayed in the... uh, a roaming house on Myrtle Street. How did they find that information? Old-fashioned police legwork. Following up leads, going and knocking on doors, going to businesses. And witnesses there at these, at these establishments identified Terry. They recognized, recognized his picture. Yes, he was here. Remember, when Terry was arrested in New York, he was carrying a stolen driver's license with the name John C. Farrell. He'd used that name to forge Zenobia Clegg's traveler's checks after the murder. When Tom Cavanaugh's detectives scanned the ledger at the Bostonian Hotel, they found the name John C. Farrell. At what time? During, during what period of time? June, July, and August of 1962. The information suggests that Charles Terry was in Boston at the right time, the summer of 62, when the first five older women were murdered. Tom Cavanaugh took this to the Boston PD and urged them to keep investigating Terry. According to Brian, they weren't interested. They did their best to motivate the Boston police into following up on Charles Terry, but they struck out. Unfortunately, Boston was beyond the command of the New York City detectives, and my dad's jurisdiction only extended to where he was, not to Boston. In fact, his detectives, Detectives Mackett and LaCurta, were chased out of Boston by the Boston police, and they were told, your badge is no good here. Go back to New York. Brian says his dad, Tom, felt he did everything he could, but at this point, he had to let it go. My father's uh, job as a detective lieutenant squad commander was to investigate and solve many other crimes being committed in Times Square. Tom Cavanaugh would go on to solve another high-profile murder case, known in the press as the Career Girl Murders. He also helped to get the death penalty banned in the state of New York, which ironically saved Charles Terry from the electric chair. His was a career any law officer would be proud of. Coming up after the break, years after he had turned in his badge, Tom Cavanaugh would find himself reopening the case of Charles Terry. And this time, he'd have the help of a partner. He says, Brian, I, I, I need to revisit this. Would you help me? And I said, certainly, Dad.
And now, back to Stranglers. One night in 1993, long after Kojak had gone into reruns, the retired Tom Cavanaugh sat at home watching TV. A current affair came on. The episode dug into the Boston Stranglings, and who could have done them? It seemed like a closed case. One man confessed to all the Stranglings. But this program presented a different view, one that caught Tom Cavanaugh's ear. The considered view by experienced detectives in Cambridge and some of those in Boston, that considered view was that it was more than one Strangler. At least two, if not more. The program made no mention of Charles Terry. Tom Cavanaugh turned off the TV and called his son, Brian. He says, he says, Brian, I, I, I need to revisit this. Would you help me? And I said, certainly, Dad. Brian Cavanaugh had worked 30 years as a public prosecutor. So both father and son knew how to dig into an old case. But Tom also knew they'd want more help. I said, he said, I'm going to reach out to my old detectives. I'm going to try to get as much information I can of Charles Terry, because he said, I don't, I don't have any files on Charles Terry. They're in the police department archives. So he reached out to different former detectives. He reached out to Jimmy Connaboy. And there was Charlie Fazio, because Charlie Fazio's nephew was still in the department, Stephen. And they were trying to get the original police. Tom Cavanaugh called this group of old detectives the Over the Hill Gang. And together, they created a wall, like you see in the movies, overflowing with photos and maps, with pushpins marking locations and crimes in Charles Terry's life. The picture they got was more disturbing than Detective Cavanaugh could have guessed 30 years earlier. Lappin said, Attica Prison would have all his records. That's where he died. And Jimmy Conaboy went up there and found all the psychiatric reports, a letter written by Terry, all the insight into his soul or lack thereof. Kavanaugh's team looked into Charles Terry's whole life. High school classmates in Waterville, Maine, remembered him as volatile and violent. According to one story, Terry's father was asked in a court hearing when he'd stopped disciplining his son. His father replied, when he threw me out a picture window. Terry dropped out of school in 10th grade and landed in and out of jail, first for stealing a car, then for raping a woman at knife point, then for attempting another rape. By the time Terry was 33, he had spent 12 and a half years in prison, mostly for brutalizing women. So Charles Terry was your, for a period of time, Charles Terry was your uncle. Ah. <laughs> Don't say that. That's the truth, though, right? Yeah, but that's not by blood, believe me. This is Daniel Lassard. Charles Terry was married to Daniel's aunt briefly when Daniel was a boy. It was in the late 1950s, a few years before the Boston Stranglings began. I just recall the incident when my uh, aunt showed up uh, wearing sunglasses. And uh, my grandfather and grandmother confronted her and wanted to know what had happened. Well, they finally uh, 
found out that he, you know, had beat her up quite badly. You know, uh, I think almost broke her nose and gave her two black eyes. Mm. So uh, my grandfather was a man not to be trifled with. He uh, he was a man's man. They don't have many of those guys around today. But uh, he told Terry, he said, I want you out of the house tonight, and you can leave her and don't come back again, or I will kill you. Daniel says he never saw Charles Terry after that day, and that was just fine with him. All the stories Tom and Brian Kavanaugh turned up about Charles Terry are ugly. You hear them, and you know Terry was an extremely violent misogynist. He was a psychopath. But the question is, was he the psychopath Boston was after? Did he do anything specific, other than murder Zenovia Clegg, that resembles the Boston Stranglings? The answer? Probably. At least once. But this crime was buried, unsolved and unnoticed for decades. That is, until Brian reached out to a journalist friend of his named Barbara Walsh. Oh, I said, Barbara, I have an interesting story that you might like, being from Boston. How would you like to know who the real, real Boston straggler was? You know? No, my father knows. She says, you know, I, I still have connections in Boston. I, I said, that's what I was hoping. I'm, I'm looking for a Boston connection. You are a Boston connection. He need, My dad needs a Boston connection. Would you like to meet my father? It was certainly one of those cases that, you know, like Jack the Ripper. I mean, everybody knows about the Boston Strangler case. But if you grew up 40 minutes north of Boston, you know, it, it was something that my parents and my grandparents lived through. Barbara began digging through Terry's records. She saw, as the Kavanaugh's did, that the New York assistant DA didn't ask Charles Terry about any Boston murders. But Terry did say at one point he had killed a woman in Brunswick, Maine. He didn't say who she was, but he named the year, 1951. So then I started researching online, you know, unsolved murders. Barbara discovered there was only one unsolved murder in Brunswick, Maine, in 1951. Shirley Coolin was murdered on May 26th. That was also Charles Terry's 21st birthday. On the day she died, Shirley Coolin was just 24, and she'd lived a hard life. Shirley had been married and divorced three times. She'd had a son who died as a baby. But Shirley had found her footing. Shirley Coolin was a waitress at the Bowdoin Hotel, and she was a big sister to um, the college students, and they all looked up to her, and she went to church and took her little daughter with her grandparents, and so she was well-liked in the community. This is Emmerich Spooner, a librarian in Bucksport, Maine. He's one of the few Strangler researchers who also subscribes to the Charles Terry theory. Emmerich wrote a book called The Boston Strangler from Maine. I believe that Charles Terry had a certain um, type of woman that he, he knew where to look for, uniforms, hospitals, nurses, and he would follow her home, find out her location, you know, if she was alone, single, married. And then he would pick and choose his time and, and go after her. 
And, you know, this is how he was so successful and got away with it. Shirley Coolin lived not far from Bowdoin College with her parents and her five-year-old daughter. She still pined for her ex-husband, a man named Guy. He was also the father of the son she had lost. In a letter a few days before her murder, Shirley pleaded with Guy to take the train to meet her in Brunswick. Dear Guy, I'm sending this one special delivery in case your mother put the last one in the stove. I know you're not married. And if you're not tied and chained to anybody, I want you to come down this weekend. You're working days, so you should be able to be down here Saturday night. I'll go to the last show at the past time. I'll look for you when I come out. Maybe you can help with the baby's grave this year. Don't show this to anybody. Love, Shirley. The last person believed to have seen the victim was Miss Muriel Kulavadas, a Bowdoin Hotel waitress who told the officials she and Shirley sat in the restaurant until about 10.40 p.m. Saturday, and that the thrice-wed divorcee kept asking about the time. Miss Kulavadas said Shirley indicated by her actions that she was expecting someone on the Boston train, which was due in Brunswick at 11 p.m. The train arrived. But Shirley's ex-husband wasn't on it. She left the station alone and headed back toward the Bowdoin Hotel. She apparently walked across the street to Park Row. Park Row was a well-to-do area. A lot of wealthy families lived there at the time, large homes, so it would have seemed like a safe walk for her. But she was intercepted along that way. The scarf which had strangled Shirley had been wound around her neck three times and knotted tightly. Authorities felt that this indicated that she had been forced to the secluded spot, then put up a terrific struggle and been killed. The newspaper noted details of the death scene that will sound eerily familiar. Police were also trying to discover the importance of the three iris leaves which had been left on her body pointing toward her face. One of the officials said that he thought it was the work of an unbalanced person. Here's this young woman strangled, and her scarf was tied up in a bow, you know, which was one of the signatures of the strangling, um, you know, that the, the victims were almost decorated. Barbara looked at police records and discovered Charles Terry was at one point suspected in Coolan's murder. But detectives couldn't tie him to the crime. He was never charged. In fact, nobody was. Officially, Shirley Coolan's murder remains unsolved. Barbara Walsh and Brian Cavanaugh believe Coolan's murder is significant to the Boston Strangler case. The similarities at the murder scene were obvious. And if Charles Terry was the Strangler, the murder of Shirley Coolan may have been the moment he established his template. What's more, if Terry had been caught in 1951, the Boston Stranglings might have been prevented. The first slaying took place June 14, 1962. The victim was Anna Schlesser. Still, there are reasons to doubt Charles Terry as the strangler. For one, he didn't always follow a pattern. Terry attacked many women in many different ways. He broke one woman's jaw and sliced her scalp. 
Another woman he apparently tried to kill with carbon monoxide and a hose. Charles Terry attacked when annoyed, when angry, and when he was drunk, which was often. Charles Terry is not the person you'd expect to sweet-talk his way into old women's apartments or leave murder scenes without a trace of evidence. The Boston Strangler was a master of evasion. Charles Terry got caught just days after he killed Zenobia Clegg, sitting at a bar with her traveler's check and cigarette case in his pocket. That said, the Boston PD and a few Strangler theorists have considered Terry and dismissed him. Terry's not going to help clear things up. He died in prison in 1981. Detective Tom Cavanaugh died in 1996. He remained sure that Terry committed some of the Boston Stranglings. He just never quite proved it. It stuck in my dad's craw that who he believed to be the strangler, who he was morally certain, and that's a big word with my father, morally certain. Morally certain meant a lot. How is morally certain different from just certain? Morally certain. People are certain sometimes just because they think they are. Not certain from a, a deep place inside, certain to the quick, morally certain where you could swear and take an oath or stand before God and say, this is what is. Not some, some whim, not some fancy. This is what I believe. After Charles Terry killed Zenobia Clegg in May 1963, the stranglings in Boston continued. Over the next several months, there would be more victims. Next time on Stranglers. With the Boston police investigation seemingly going nowhere, the state of Massachusetts steps in and lands a suspect who will eventually confess to all 13 murders. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray, and the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Georgia Wall, Millie Cap, Megan Cavan, James Demmer and to the Harry Ransom Center archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are... Thatcher Keats. Tom Pakulski. Chris Stack. Jess Garrett. Original scoring is by Allison Layton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil D. Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, the family business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
next time on Stranglers. Sort of heartbreaking at times. We get our foot in the door, so to speak, and the bottom falls out of our hot lead. That's when the frustration comes in. Heartache, frustration, and disorganization. Things were very parochial back then. Well, we're Boston, we're Lynn, we're Salem, we're Lawrence. We have our own police departments. The city of Boston creates the Strangler Task Force. The Attorney General, Edward Brooks, said, okay, I'm going to take the unprecedented step. We're going to coordinate all of these investigations into one task force. We're going to pick detectives who have worked on the cases. Uh, After that, the next day I was called in uh, to help on this murder. That's next time on Stranglers.